going to invite you to do something. I'm going to invite you to put your hands like this, put them on your lap just for a minute while we pray. Because right now counts forever. I wish to open with a uh, crafted prayer by Ted Loader. So let's pray. Close your eyes, hands in front of you. Let's pray. Holy One, there is something that I wanted to tell you, but there have been errands to run, bills to pay, arrangements to be made, friends to entertain, washing to do, and I forgot what I wanted to say to you. But mostly I forgot about what, I forgot what I'm about or why. Oh God, please don't forget about me. Father in heaven, perhaps you've already heard what I wanted to tell you. What I wanted to ask you is to forgive me, to heal me, and to increase my courage, please. Renew in me a little love and faith, a sense of confidence and a vision of what it might be to live as though you're real and I mattered and everyone around me was a sister or a brother. What I wanted to ask in my blundering way is don't give up on me. Don't become too sad about me, but laugh with me and try again with me, and I will with you too. Amen. The Bible is first a story of God, and then is a story about God's character, His works, His promises, His plans. And they are evident in various people, events, and circumstances. And so what I wish for us to do together today is to continue what we started last week. Last week we said, what is the Bible? And this week we're going to add a word. Then what is it about? And how is it relevant for my life and for yours? In the Bible, you'll read about people like Esther and David. You'll read about others like Job or in the New Testament, Peter and Mary. In other words, you'll read about people like you and I living through events and circumstances and learning to trust what it is to follow Jesus, or in the Old Testament, learning what it is to know Yahweh and follow in His way. And what's quite interesting about the Bible, and one of the things that actually creates authenticity around it, is if you and I write an autobiography about our lives, I promise you there will be things that you will wish to edit. That there will be things in that autobiography that you don't wish to be told as truthfully as they need to be told. That you'll want to do what politicians do, which is called spin. Make that, make me look better in that event or circumstance. Yet one of the ways that we see in the Bible is it shows us the human frailty and fragility of every life. It does not hide the ugly from the beautiful. So here's my question. What if your life was going to be written about in the same way that others in Scripture would be written about? Let's place your story and then mine for a moment in focus today. Only difference is you don't get to write your story. The people around you get to write the story of your life about you. What would they say? What would they write? Here's six questions that they would work through. If I was to write a story about you, regardless of your age, what what have you placed at the center of your story? How do you describe who you are to others? 
What is wrong with you? Turn the person beside you and say, I didn't know there was anything wrong with me. What is wrong with you? What is wrong with the world? From your perspective, what's wrong with the world? Then what's the solution? What do you hope for in this world? And lastly, what do you believe happens to you when you die? If I used my life, I would take you back to about a little less than 30 years ago. I was 21 years old and I was in my second year of university at Carleton University. Why was I at Carleton? Because it's the only one that would accept me. (laughs) But there I was, I had finished first year, somehow miraculously completing and graduating through all of my courses in year one. And in year one, I really focused on grades. But something happened in year two. It isn't that I didn't focus on grades, but I had a different intent in year two than I did in year one. I had three aha moments in university. At that time in my life, at 21 years old, 20 years old, 20 or 21, I can't remember, but I'm going to say 20. At 20 years old, I had faith that was rooted firmly in who Jesus is regarding salvation. However, I didn't trust that he had everything to say about truth when it came to life. He was Savior, but he was not Lord of every area of my life. And there I was in university listening and on a search for small t truth. And I had three aha moments. The first is this. I understood that the social sciences had rules and methods that govern how they operate. I wasn't in like the science science part. I was in the social science. So I was in psychology and philosophy. I was in some economics and political science. I even took a course on feminist studies, which wasn't what I thought it was going to be about. (laughs) The subtext to that The subtext to that class was truly why men are the worst thing to ever happen in the world. And by the end of the course, I was a believer in it wholly. (laughs) My professor was quite compelling. But I began to understand first that social sciences had rules and methods that govern how they operate appropriately. Did you know that the same is true about this book? Why are the chapters and the verses and the books in it and why are some not? Why can you not pick up this book and make it say whatever you want it to say? R.C. Sproul said, if we want to find the one true meaning of a biblical text, we follow something called the grammatical historical method, and it's important. It's not important that you remember what it is. It's important that you you do what it says to do. The grammatical historical method approach, this approach investigates the original cultural setting of the text. It focuses on the grammar and the syntax to understand what the author of the text meant when they wrote it to their original audience. Only this method can give us the original meaning of the biblical text. Otherwise, we end up with dangerous subjectivism, subjectivism that denies truth itself. For those of you watching now and watching later on YouTube in particular, somehow our algorithm has gone south of the border. So I just want to remind you as a disclaimer, if you're an American who's watching this, I don't vote in your elections. Thank you. Don't need to email me. I don't vote in your elections. I don't pick a side. I'm Canadian. I get emails each week from Americans asking me which side of the political spectrum I'm on. I don't even live in your country. <laughs> but I understood that there needs to be rules and methods. I, need to, I, I, do, I, I understood and it helped my faith understanding that just because somebody quotes this doesn't mean they quote it in context. And that was really helpful to me because I have seen this word used to harm people and not heal people. 
And that was helpful for me in my journey. But the second thing I happened in my 20s is I also understood that all faith and belief comes down to trusting a source. As I sat in lectures, I began to hear about the works of Freud and Piaget or Jung or Marx or Keynesian economics. And I had an epiphany in university realizing all of those are just people. And so when I'm disagreeing with something, I'm just disagreeing with the person. I am not touching this holy truth. And so my second year of university, with grades not being the number one focus, I began a practice. And I did it for the remaining years of my university where I would write to the best of my ability, which obviously was oftentimes C plus, B minus. Sometimes miraculously, I got an A. But I would write to the best of my ability during tests and exams and essays, this is what you've asked me to regurgitate. And then I would draw a line and I would say, but this is what I actually believe and I'd love to have a conversation about this. Here's what I want you to know. If you're in university and you choose to do that, or high school, your grades can go down. Okay, so be warned. And sometimes I would sit with teacher's assistants or professor's assistants or professors, and I would go in with arguments, and they would wipe the floor with me, and I'd walk out humbled, and that was good for my soul. But other times, I feel sometimes I would have these little moments of, what about this? And I could not get a response, and I enjoyed those moments thoroughly. When you begin to see that the things that you hold most dear and the things that you in our culture believes that are most evidently true are rooted in a person, it gives you sometimes some courage to begin to ask some questions. This too is rooted in a person. The central issue of faith is, is Jesus who he said he was or is he just another person? On this rests faith. The six asked questions often reveal in our own lives the sources we trust. And something specific Jesus said to the people of his day, I think, should give us some pause today, some humility today. In John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man who has been paralyzed for 38 years. Everyone say that's a long time. I would think if Jesus healed somebody who'd been paralyzed for 38 years, the only appropriate response would be celebration and worship. But it isn't so. Because following Jesus healing this man who has been paralyzed for 38 years, he tells the man, he gives the man a specific instruction, something descriptive for his scenario. He says, pick up your mat and walk. Do something you've never been able to do before. Walk, picking up your mat, was work. It just so happened that Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, the Torah said that you cannot work. And so now you have a move of Jesus and a conflict in the culture in which he was a part of. And let me say this with all love, yet clarity. Whether it is your life individually or whether it is our culture's life, when it comes to truth, any truth, Jesus does not mind engaging in conflict. Jesus will offend you sometimes if what you're thinking or believing is not rooted in ultimate truth to lead you lovingly to that place. He is not so meek and mild as to not care or have concern for your thoughts, your emotions, and your feelings, nor of a culture's. And this is what he is doing here in this moment. 
And I think together we must resist the urge to shrug off this moment as a kind of like an only Jesus' day religious issue. Larry Osborne says, if we fail to understand how spiritually impressive the Pharisees were, we will remain blind to the danger of becoming like them. We'll assume that their tragic transformation from passionate defenders of God into mortal enemies of God could never happen to us. Healing the man, Jesus was showing them the heart of God. He was showing the heart of Torah. He was fulfilling the scriptures. He was fulfilling Torah. He wasn't breaking Torah. Scripture was not being broken, but it was being fulfilled. Yet here's what happened, and here's what happens today. Sometimes when Jesus leads us to truth, what is breaking is our idea of who God is that isn't who God is. This is what's being confronted, and it's terribly uncomfortable then, and it's wildly uncomfortable for us today. But Jesus does this for for and from and only love. Here's what he says to them plainly. You pour over the scriptures, and this terrifies me, by the way. Genuinely terrifies me. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. And yet they testify about me. This is what Jesus says. And then he follows it up with this. Here's the issue that he says. You are not willing to come to me so that you could have life. In other words, Jesus is driving at something profound, I think, here. Here's the question. What's the real conflict in society? What was the real conflict here? Jesus says, the real conflict, in other words, the real conflict is not merely that I said pick up your mat on the Sabbath. This isn't the real conflict. The real conflict is I brought life to this man in a way that you cannot do. Because you are living not, you are, you are reading the words and memorizing the words, but the words are not transforming you. This is what Jesus is saying Oh, loved ones, we have many in the church today that want to see all the miracles, all the signs, and all the wonders, but yet do not desire to have an inner life the way Jesus had an inner life. We want the external signs without the inner life. And you know what this season and every season shows us? If you take any man, woman, or child who becomes a minister of God and the external work of God outpaces the internal work of God, you know what you're going to see? You're going to see a fall. You're going to see it again and again and again. Like I think sometimes, what would it be like to be surrounded by every wind of argument and be Jesus who is so centered in the love of the Father and in the truth of God's word. He is the word that became flesh. He is so centered that everything can swirl around him and he is at perfect peace. Cut me off in traffic and you'll see I am not at perfect peace. Rip me off 10 bucks and I'll show you I am not at perfect peace. Insult me and you will see that I'm not at perfect peace. Offend me and you will see I'm not at perfect peace. Loved ones, if we are not at perfect peace the way Jesus is at perfect peace, we are trusting in an inferior source somewhere. 
And it is the work of the Holy Spirit to show that so that we can surrender and walk in the way of Jesus. Like I read other stories in the, in the New Testament of a woman, we sang about it allegorically. Our affection, our devotion poured out on the feet of Jesus. It is the story of a woman who takes about a year's worth of wages and buys this alabaster box of oil of expensive perfume, and then rather than spending it on herself, and rather than just taking it in a selfish way, she breaks it and she pours it out on the feet of Jesus, anointing him for his upcoming death and burial. She just pours it out on his feet. And it is an extraordinary, extraordinary moment because everybody in the house, with now the smell of that aroma, they become two things. They become, number one, convicted at their own lack of worship, and then they become indignant towards her. Why? Because she worships in a way that is free and abandonment that perhaps they could only dream. And when people are free in a way that others dream, we usually don't lift them up, we attack them. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me, but you're not willing to come to me. The core challenge is we're not oftentimes willing to come to Jesus so that we might have life. And to complicate things further, if we don't go to Jesus, it's not like we just kind of live in purgatory. Some of you are Catholic, know what I'm talking about here. It's not as though we live kind of like nowhere. Your beliefs are never orphaned. They are always rooted in something or someone, even if that something or someone is you. And so if we don't go to Jesus, then we have gone somewhere else. And if it is somewhere else, it is inferior. If we miss Jesus, if you read this whole thing and you miss Jesus, then you miss the whole heart of it. But equally true, if I, which I have done in my life and have repented of, if I make Jesus who I want him to be rather than who he is, I also will not live into the life that God intends. Speaking of missing or making Jesus whom we want, watch this next story. Luke chapter, I'm going to take you to Luke chapter 24 now. I'll give you a bit of the context, okay? Jesus has been crucified, and now it's Sunday, and he's risen from the dead. And in being risen from the dead, uh, there are some women who go to the tomb, and they think he's a gardener, so they mistake him. And then he's on the shoreline, you see, with the disciples, and they don't recognize him at first. And now he's on this road called Emmaus, which is just kind of like saying, like, I'm on Innes Road. Like, it's just a road. And Jesus shows up, and, and they don't recognize him. So I readily admit that something supernatural is going on here. So we're going to hold that, and then we're going to move to what Jesus does about it. So now that same day, that's Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, and, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And together they were discussing everything that had taken place. This is regarding Jesus, okay, the crucifixion, everything they just watched. And while they were discussing and arguing, oh, isn't it great to have friends that you can discuss and argue with, by the way? What a gift. As they were discussing and arguing, as they were in the middle of an intense argument, Jesus shows up. Oh, that is the prayer for Canadians today. As Christian Canadians, as we are discussing and arguing, Lord, come in the midst. Come in the middle of that place. 
And Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them, but they were prevented from recognizing him supernatural. Now, here's the greater reason of why I bring us here. In order for them to recognize, they're talking all about Jesus. Jesus is present. So there is a supernatural thing and there's a dangerous thing. Here's what we can see. You can read all about this book and miss Jesus. That's what Jesus said. You can go to whole, your, your church your whole life and miss the heart of it. And secondly, you can be talking all about what you see Jesus doing and still not see Jesus when he's present. This is what Jesus is saying. This is what this book says. So here's a question I ask myself. It's a dangerous question. If I was Jesus, turn the person beside you and say, oh Lord, no. I'm not, and neither are you. But if we were Jesus... How would we choose to reveal ourselves to these two guys who are arguing and discussing on the road to Emmaus? I would have shown up like Revelation Jesus, fire in his eyes, sword in his hand, freak him right out. I would have wanted to show up like Transfiguration Jesus, where the light is so bright it blinds them. Some of you are like, I, I wouldn't. Holier than thou. Not me, I would have showed up. Excuse me, gentlemen. <laughs> I was wondering if I could have a word. The question is, how does Jesus choose to reveal himself? Well, as we've read last week, John says that he is the word who became flesh. So do you know what he does? He uses this. Here's what it says. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, beginning with the book of Genesis, all the way to all the prophets, major and minor, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in this book. So when Jesus chooses to reveal himself to people who do not know who he is, he uses not just, I like the New Testament God, not the Old Testament one. Fair, fair. Except when Jesus chooses to reveal who he is, he uses the whole of this book to show them who he is. And as he does that, you know what happens? It says their hearts begin to burn. They begin to burn in a way that is different than sitting under any teaching or learning about anything else. Something happens, listen, on the inside of them that begins to cause curiosity about who he is. Jesus shows them, he goes all the way to Genesis, Torah, and shows that the law was the foundation for Jesus. The wisdom in the Psalms, we see the longing for Jesus. We, today we can see Jesus doesn't do it because it wasn't yet written, but the Gospels are all about the coming of Jesus and the epistles are all about the commands of Jesus and the revelation is this consummation in Jesus and Jesus shares with them in detail essentially from the Old Testament to the resurrection what this book is about and their hearts begin to burn within them. My question is, is Jesus of the Bible the center of your story? Is the Jesus of the Bible included in how you describe yourself to others? Is sin, is the enemy of Jesus, the sickness of our souls? Is it the root cause for what is wrong in you and the world? Is the life, ministry, and teachings of Jesus the solution? Is Jesus your anchored hope in the world? And lastly, is faith in Jesus your future trust for what happens to you when you die? 
As a pastor who does lots of funerals, I hear this one 9.9 times out of 10. Well, they were a really good person. This book is not about you being a bad person and becoming a good person. This book is about you being dead in Christ, dead outside of faith, and then made new, new beginning, alive in Christ. It's not just that you're a better person or a good, I hope becoming like Jesus makes you into a more profound person, a more kind person, a more caring person, a more other-centered person, but the heart of this book is not good people make it to heaven and bad people go to hell, because if it is, we're all in trouble. None of us is good enough. Oh, you may have lots of people, to them you're good enough, but we all have that one person, to them we're not good enough. Watch how profound this is. And when the question is asked if you were good enough, the number one person that comes into your mind is usually the person who in your eyes, you're not good enough to them. That is how incestuous, that's how, that is how woundful your spiritual enemy is. He will always define you by your worst moment, your most difficult relationship, and your most profound failure. And here's the question. It isn't that when the enemy does that, it's not true. It is, however, not truth. I have some relationships that I wish I could have a do-over. Can I get a show of hands? See, according to the Jesus of the Bible, in reading and studying the Bible, there is danger and there is discovery. Danger that we can read here, study the Bible, and miss Jesus, thus miss what it's all about. But the discovery is that we can read here and study the Bible and trust that the way of Jesus leads to life. Now, I know this is the 21st century, but let me just go rewind for a second, just for a second. I want to take you back to the 17th century. The 17th century is known as, if you're a historian, you know this, it's known as the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment brought the idea, this, this one singular idea, that human reason is the highest form of authority. And with it came some excellent breakthroughs, yes, but also a profound societal shift. Whereas the Bible once inspected our lives and revealed our sin, post-enlightenment, we grew to not being, we grew to not like being told what to do. So now we began to inspect the pages of the Bible in an attempt to reveal its errors to excuse our own. In clarity and humility, I, I would just suggest, I think a critical issue today is how high a value we place on our own thoughts, feelings, and experiences. It isn't that we have them, that's not the problem. It's the lofty place of authority that we give them. This year I'll turn 50. If you're a little younger than I am, maybe just heed one word from this old guy. What you believe to be so true about yourself in this decade can change in another. What you believe so certainly that you think will never change 
can be profoundly challenged in another season of your life. And this leads me to my third aha moment and I had as a 21-year-old in university. I sat in a lecture with a professor who said these words. And I wasn't in church, but it felt like I was in a different type of church. You know when the preacher says something, the odd Sunday that's good, and you all go like, amen. You know, just once I'd like to have one of those moments. But you know when that happens, was a joke by the way, you know when that happens? It's happened in the class. My professor said these words, the person who knows you best is you. And the class said, amen. And in my heart I went, oh no. Not to critique them, the call of God, it comes. <laughs> Not to critique them, but in my own heart. If that is true, my little heart went, <laughs> if that is true, if that is true, that is profoundly terrifying for me. An old prophet older than I said these words, for as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Okay, by a show of hands, and I want you to be honest here in this moment. Does everybody in this room right now, do you love everything about yourself? If you do, let me see your hands. Okay. I'm not putting my hand up. I'm putting my hand up for the next one. As a 21-year-old, I really realized in this moment that I, I, I appreciate the methods for education. I understand that sources of truth are just human people, but I no longer believed, I no longer believed that I was the sole and final authority of who I am. Because there are things in my life that I detest that are in my life. There, there are ways that I am that I have had multiple conversations with God about. Like I look at some other leaders' life, lives and I'm amazed at how they lead. They lead clear, with clarity and boldness and they seem to like intuitively know the way like they've had this grand vision and they just walk in it. And it's just not the way I lead at all. You know how God leads me? I stumble along the way. I chase whispers. Some people have like grand visions and they see the next 10 years. I chase whispers. I constantly am worried about how I said it. Did I say it the right way? Did it offend you? I am tender-hearted. Why don't I like to hug? Because I get too close. 
And when I get too close, sometimes it compromises my ability to teach because I'm thinking about all the situations and I'm like, ah, ah, ah. And then I become a politician and not a preacher. And I've wrestled this way. God, why is it that some people can just get up and say things and like they just don't care? And I care about too much. But here's what I know. If my life is rooted in you know yourself best, uh uh-uh. God, I know and I trust that you have created me on purpose for a purpose. And so I trust that every which way that you've created me, not all of it is good. Those parts are being transformed to look more like Jesus. But I trust that you created in this me for a reason. That you know better. That your plans are better, that your thoughts are better, that your design is better than my understanding of my design. Okay, I'll stop talking. Here's a helpful articulation for me in in holding the Bible in a place of greater authority than my own thoughts, feelings, experiences, and beliefs. They're real and they're there. If the Gospels are accurate, this is going to go frontwards than backwards. If the Gospels are accurate, Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus is the Son of God. God's words can be trusted. Scripture is true if Jesus was raised from the dead. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, Scripture is true. God's word can be trusted. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is who he said he was. And the Gospels are accurate. The Bible is challenging, but it's good news. Really good news. You were created by God. You, you were created by God. Who knew you before you were born. In a way of knowing, well, explain that. I cannot. I'm finite. I have a beginning and an end. Not God. In the beginning, God. When kids ask that question, I'm always like, like, where did God come from? Oh boy, go ask your mother. (laughs) You're here on purpose and for a purpose. To join Jesus in seeing on earth as it is in heaven. And that is as individual as a relationship. And it's grand as the grandest of visions. You know what you are to most businesses? A product. You know what you are to some politicians? A vote. You know what you are to some people? An argument to be on their side. You know what you are to God? whether you love him or spit in his face. You are a Mago Dei. You are created in the image and likeness of God. Whether somebody put a label on you as normal or on a spectrum. Whether your life has been nothing but bliss or suffering. Loved ones, be weary of a, kind, of a country that says your life is too expensive to continue. 
we speak and live the values that we believe. And the values of around us do not always jive with the values of this book, of the author of this book. You're a child of God. And so your life has intrinsic value, so much so that Jesus came to die in your place so that you could have a reconciled relationship with the author of this book. For Jesus, postures are real important. Statements are important, but they are not more important than people. People have a purpose. And your life on earth has eternal implications. Directly quoted from this book, the English says, for God loved the world in this way. The original text says, for God so loves the people of this world in this way that he gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him the Bible is a story about God and is a good news story about you me and the world in which we live And the final question I would ask is, will we allow God's word to change us by making us more like Jesus? Or will our lives be marked by us changing Jesus into a small G God so that we can justify living the lives we want? Was the band Depeche Mode in the 80s and 90s prophetically true? Do you have a personal Jesus or do you have the Jesus found in this book? Because only coming to the Jesus found in this book means we receive life on earth and then forevermore. And because right now counts forever, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm reminded of the song that we sang earlier that I I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but holy trust in Jesus' name. Confession, Lord, it's probably not true for all of us, any of us. Can we honestly say before you, Father, that we trust you in all things? So I pray, Lord, if we have the sweetest frames of beliefs, thoughts, experiences, and definitions that are not who you have ultimately said we are, destable us, God, by removing those very things that prop up our lives. Father, may we be so knocked off kilter that in desperation we reach. And when we reach, and when we see that many of the things that we trust in now are not present, but you will not forsake us. May we trust 
that you are worthy, that you are Savior, and that you are Lord. Amen. Thank you.